2016 presents Welcome back to another episode of the Music and Photography Podcast. I'm Billy Sanford, and today my special guest is Helen Hooker. Hello, Helen. How are you doing? I'm very well, thanks, Billy. How are you? I'm doing very nice. Thank you. And thank you for taking uh, some time to chat with me today. Hi, it's a pleasure. <laughs> <laughs> so I mentioned when I reached out that I first became familiar with your story through your appearance on the Lensless Podcast with Andrew Bartram. And it sounded like you were one of the ideal candidates for a podcast about music and photography. I certainly have a, have a foot in both camps, put it that way. <laughs> That's right. And maybe we'll circle back around to Andrew in a little bit. I do need, feel like I need to thank him for mentioning my podcast during that conversation, <laughs> but also for introducing me to you and your story. So photography is very much a passion, but your professional life is centered around music, right? <laughs> That's right, yes. So can you tell everyone a little bit about all of the various musical endeavours that you have? Certainly. I'm, I suppose you could say I, I work in a bit of a niche profession because I'm a professional recorder player. Right. Um, <laughs> I think most people, <laughs> most people are familiar with the recorder as perhaps something they played at school, but yeah, perhaps right. don't imagine that it can be played professionally. But I spend my life um, playing the recorder, I perform on it. But a lot of my life is actually done working in educational circles with adult recorder players. Okay. Uh, working with groups of groups of musicians. Okay. And you studied formally at Trinity College of Music, right? That's right, yes. So many of the people that I talk to, I probably talk to more people who are primarily interested in photography, but they have a, an interest in music and a lot of them are self-taught. So I am curious about people who have been formally trained in music. What was kind of that formal music education like at the time when you went through it? It was great. I loved my college years. Through my school years, I didn't even consider doing music as a career. When I did my A-levels, that's sort of the qualifications you do before you go off to university or college. I did much more practical music, playing in ensembles and orchestras and what have you. And my parents right. encouraged me and said, well, why don't you give it a try for you know, doing music at college and right. see where it takes you. And uh, I've been very fortunate. I've, I've come out of college and managed to continue my career in music rather than getting diverted into other things. <laughs> right. And so what was the curriculum like? I mean, I'm sure that they try to instruct you on how to be a better musician but sort of what are what are some of the 
other types of coursework that is required of a music student. I guess they're more theory based and conducting and arranging and, and those sorts of things. Yes, it was pretty varied. We did uh, history of music, harmony, a little bit of composition. That was never really my strong point. <laughs> um, lots and lots of playing. I mean, that was one of the reasons I went to music college rather than university was because mm -hmm. I knew I'd get a lot more playing opportunities right. with other musicians. Um, yes, so it was, it was a big mixture. I did a little bit of conducting when I was at college. We did have choral conducting classes. But I right. distinctly remember my tutors telling me I look scared witless. So <laughs> I think you'd find it hilarious that I spend a lot of my time conducting now. <laughs> right. Right. That's another thing I'm always interested about. What was that initial spark for music for you? Was Were your parents uh, interested? Did they play a musical instrument or have music playing in the house maybe a lot while you were growing up? Um. Neither of my parents were musicians themselves. My, actually, I have to lie. My mum played the piano when she was a child, but gave up fairly early on. My dad, particularly, has been always been very interested in music. He's not a musician himself. He would, you know, happily admit that he's, in, in terms of singing, he's tone deaf. <laughs> <laughs> but he likes listening to music, and he's he knows what he likes. So we always had music around. And my first step into it really was at primary school where in my particular school all seven-year-olds were given a recorder and told you will play this <laughs> right so along with the rest of my class I took up the recorder um found I really enjoyed it and had some ability at it so I just sort of kept going and it sort of went from there really right well and so you touched on that uh, at the beginning too when you were talking about the recorder and actually that was my introduction to music mm. this is this is a, I'm in the States, of course, in Alabama. And when I was growing up, this was part of our primary school experience. You know, we do the arithmetic and literature and history and, and your traditional subjects, but they also tried to introduce us to the arts. So we might study art and painting sort of uh, artistic endeavors, and they might teach us dance for a session and then uh, music is part of that as well. And, and so the recorder is what they had us playing. And I had noticed with some of the folks I talked to early on, we're also in the UK and it sounds like that's part of the traditional curriculum for young children there as well, an introduction to music. I think so. I mean, I think probably sadly less so today. There's, I think there's less music going on in schools now than there used to be. But certainly when I was at school, everyone learnt the recorder at school. Right. It's a good instrument to get kids started off on. But actually, if you're going to play it well, it takes a lot of hard work. I think a lot of people you think, oh, it's just something that school kids do. <laughs> um. <laughs> well, it is nice because you can sort of jump in and play something. I mean, to your point, yes. it's not going to be uh, extremely complex music <laughs> with layers and layers of harmony and, and that sort of thing. But uh, it is something that a child could pick up and play a tune fairly quickly, a, a simple tune. You know, that is, in my experience, at least, uh, whenever I've tried to learn some new instrument, one of the common stumbling blocks, I feel like, if you want to play guitar because of the dexterity in your fingers that it requires and the pain <laughs> initially. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> I suspect a lot of people give up just because they can't produce something that they enjoy, but that's not 
true for the recorder. I suspect you can at least play something pretty yes. quickly. I think, I think it's, it's you can get a, a reasonable sound on it fairly quickly. I used to teach in schools a lot, and I spent one particular year teaching in the room next to the oboe player. Uh, sorry, the oboe teacher, and she had a particularly large group of beginners that year, and it sounded every half an hour there was a new duck being strangled in the room. Truly <laughs> <Extremely> grateful. <laughs> Not to say the recorder can't sound bad as well, but uh, beginner oboes and beginner violins are particularly painful, it has to be said. <laughs> right. Well, sort of along those lines, as an educator, have you noticed, and, and we talked about what might be the biggest one just not being able to produce something that people enjoy but sort of when you are teaching someone who's beginning you know day one no experience whatsoever kind of what are are there any other common kind of stumbling blocks that you've come across that people have to get over that hump to to kind of set them down the path do you mean in, in terms of sort of actual technique to get started it could be technique it could be just yeah probably technique is is the best way but just also understanding e even the basics of music theory i guess maybe yes i mean that is particularly when i was teaching in in schools teaching young children of course they were learning very often learning to read music and learning right. technique at the same time which is you know is a bit of a challenge but i think certainly with recorder i think some of the biggest things are getting the breath control you're learning mm -hmm. to breathe well and then to create a really nice sound and then you say you say about playing the guitar obviously on the recorder you've also got the dexterity with the, with the fingers right. and getting right. that finger control so and combining everything so, <laughs> satisfying when it works right and then the other part from an educational standpoint that we talked about a few minutes ago i mean i think at least traditionally, it seemed like this idea of teaching music to ch young children was to kind of introduce them and widen their their worldview, give them a more, you know, robust educational experience. Kind of what was your own personal philosophy as an educator, e even now when you're teaching people? What, it, what do you hope to give them by helping them achieve something musically and, and adding that to their life experience? Well, most of my work now is with adults, okay. um, recorder players rather than children. I, I did teach in schools for about 20 years and then we mm -hmm. moved to a different area of the country and I didn't manage to replace that. So I've gradually sort of developed my adult education. And most of the work I do is with groups of adults and the real joy mm -hmm. is helping them explore ensemble repertoire, playing together. The, the, one of the best things, I, I clearly remember this when I was a teenager, I went on a recorder summer school mm -hmm. and every evening we'd have a massed playing session where everyone would come together and play together about 150 people and just that amazing sound of 150 people playing together now remember this is recorders from the sopranino which is about six inches long down right. to the contrabass which is six feet long <laughs> uh, right so it was a really big sound and I, that very first year when i was 16 before we had mobile phones and email and i sent my mum and dad a postcard to tell them all about it, <laughs> tell them about it. i was so excited right uh, it's nice being able to share that excitement and enthusiasm with the musicians i work with absolutely so let's talk about some of your performance more these days you know, you were talking about a, a camp that you attended 
when you were younger, but some of the you're playing these days, what is the normal sort of, like you will play concerts at churches, at schools, at I think the National Portrait Gallery you mentioned on your website. What what are some of the venues and events that, that you may be performing at? I do a mixture of performing really. I play professionally with a chamber group, the Parnassian mm -hmm. Ensemble. Okay. So that's two recorders, harpsichord and cello. Okay. And we've played at lots of places. You say we've played at the National Portrait Gallery. We gave a recital at the Purcell Room in London on the South Bank okay. some years back. And we've we've travelled all over all over the country. We did a little tour to Norway about three or four years ago, just for okay. COVID. And so we yeah, we put together that's mostly Baroque music we're playing, sort of eighteenth mm -hmm. century music, but we play we do some modern stuff as well. Right. Um, uh, so I do that and then I, I, you know, I work with recorder orchestras sometimes playing with them more recently conducting them right so sort of a, a mix a mixture of things really <laughs> okay yeah absolutely <laughs> so that was the third part I mean, we talked a little bit about the education side and the playing mm -hmm. side but conducting is the other leg of the stool I guess we, we yes. might say <laughs> and there are two different groups that you conduct regularly with is that right that's right yes i've got two recorder orchestras that i conduct mm -hmm. so i've got the thames valley recorder orchestra which is a traditional if you like recorder orchestra i say traditional it's a, it's a, it's a phenomenon that only really started in about the 1960s but that's everything from you know the tiny sopranino down to a sub contrabass mm -hmm. but i've also got the mellow tones recorder orchestra that I direct, which is an, what we call an eight-foot orchestra. Okay. So the smallest recorder is a tenor, so it's mm -hmm. a much lower, really lush sound. It's just wonderful. I mean, it's, once you've heard an eight-foot orchestra, you wonder why anyone would ever want to play a, <laughs> a recorder. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. And so as part of your responsibilities as the conductor to choose the music that you'll play for any given concert? It is. I mean, the Mellow Tones Orchestra, we just as a rehearsing band, it's just, just mm -hmm. for fun. So we meet once a quarter. But the other orchestra, we do a concert once once a year. We give a concert in the summer. Okay. Um, I have to cho choose the repertoire. So it's, it's a question of choosing music from a variety of different periods and styles. Um, right. uh, yeah, building that into a programme the audience will enjoy, hopefully. Right. <laughs> so are the, are the members of these two groups also professional musicians or did they come from all walks of life a mixture most of them are amateur musicians okay uh, but yeah there's a few professionals as well and it's amateur music amateur recorder players come in all shapes and sizes you get people who are just starting out you know, sometimes people just take up record when they've just retired and they want to sort of you know do some music but i've also right. We also have players who are you know, very advanced and could quite easily be professionals in their own right as well, if they wanted to. <laughs> right, right. Uh, we chatted just a little bit before we started recording, and I was curious because this was, you know, certainly one of the big impacts of COVID and the, and the associated lockdowns for musicians particularly I, and and this is you know at all levels and all forms of music i mean big concerts uh pop music concerts were canceled even you know people that play on the weekends in their local pubs uh, <laughs> they were out of work as well but this impacted orchestral type concerts as well of course 
but you did continue to play with other musicians online and we were chatting a little bit about that what was that experience like it's been sort of a mixture of things really i've done quite a few zoom sessions with groups of musicians sometimes for small groups around the country and funnily enough actually i was i did a session a couple of weekends ago with with a group in new york okay <laughs> i was it you know directed a group in new york without even having to cross the cross the atlantic <laughs> uh, i think probably the biggest one online was probably a couple of years ago we have um the society of recorder players in the uk mm-hmm. which is amateur recorder players around the country and they gather into branches into groups there's something similar in america the american recorder society and groups get together to play normally we have a big festival in the springtime where lots of recorder players get together but of course with covid we couldn't Mm -hmm. so we had a virtual festival instead (laughs) and we had i think about 100 people came to that online okay but the problem with music making online by and large you can only because of the delay in the internet connection you can't play together in real time because by the time the sound has traveled down the across the internet and reached the other side you're not in time with each other (laughs) (laughs) so it's a question of what i've what i've very often done with these groups i've been through the pandemic recording multi-track videos of pieces of um, ensemble music there's loads of them on my website i've built up quite a large library there so i've been using those so people can play along with them Mm -hmm. over zoom with their microphones muted so that you don't get complete carnage, <laughs> <laughs> right. complete sound chaos. That you know, it means they get a feeling of playing with others, right. even, even though at the time they weren't allowed to be in the same room. And it's worked, worked really well, actually. It's, it's, and it kept me active as a musician. It's helped keep the recorder world playing as well, which has been <laughs> great fun. It's nice, been nice to have a hand in that. That's right. I, and that was something that I was going to ask about too so i'm glad you mentioned it uh, the educational side and how that was impacted by COVID as well but that was sort of your way to help aspiring recorder players through the pandemic right were the videos yes i mean i did i'd seen people there were a lot of musicians doing multi-track videos you know mm-hmm. stuck at home and i thought oh that they might be fun to do so i sort of had a play around found an app on my phone that i could use and just as an experiment created one and sort of stuck it out on one of the recorder groups on facebook and said what do you think would this be any help and got a good response so i thought well (laughs) i'll I'll try a few more and i i ended up through the the height of the pandemic putting out a new one every week right and they've been used by players all around the world i've been amazed and i've kept kept going i'm now doing the fortnightly and there are people who are still using them, even though they're now playing back together face to face as well. <laughs> so it's it's, it's changed changed my working life really. It's added another element to what I do. Yeah, right. Life, which is great. I've really enjoyed it. <laughs> it is so. It brings up another good point. And you talked about uh, you know the lushness of sound of the eight foot orchestra and just in general music. It's certainly a thing a person can do by themselves. And a lot of people do photography by themselves, but part of the fun of music, at least from my experience, is making music with other people. Is that part of the enjoyment of it for you? Absolutely. Yes. I mean, I one of the big things I enjoy most is playing with other people, 
and working with yeah you know, when i'm working with ensembles directing them there's something that just can't be replicated virtually and it's that that interaction between the musicians and bouncing off each other right um, so that's yeah one of the one of the big big attractions of it really i think okay yeah definitely and in the very first conversation in the series of podcasts i talked to claire marie bailey and she threw out something that you touched on as well on your photography website which was one of the things that these two things have in common is how practice benefits you with music and photography and so one of one of the most impressive things to me <laughs> that came out of that conversation with Andrew uh, was this photo a day project that you did. <laughs> and you did yes. and you you mentioned you did it to get practice and you intended to do it for a year, but you kept it going for a decade. I did. <laughs> <laughs> it just I, yes, I mean, I started off doing it because I wanted to just having that pressure of having to put a photo a day on my blog right made me get out and use my camera and because i was using it more i got to know it better and got to you know got to learn more about photography mm -hmm. and initially that's a it feels like a big chore i think oh i've got to find a photo and <laughs> there were were occasions that would be half past 11 at night i think oh i haven't taken my photo yet right <laughs> right there's the cat take a photo of the cat and <laughs> uh, um, but over yeah, over time you sort of build up. Yeah, you know, I found strategies. So I'd always have a camera with me, and that's a habit I have to this day. I always can carry a camera with me. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you know, even though I'm not necessarily posting something every day now. But you learn to. I found I was looking at the world differently. Mm -hmm. So whenever I was out and about, I'd be looking at things, and I think, oh, it's a nice light on that, or something would catch my eyes. Right, okay, I'll take a photo of that, and that will be my photo for the day. So, so it became a habit, right? And quite addictive. And I got to the end <laughs> of the first year and just thought, well, why do I need to stop? I may as well just keep going. So I did. <laughs> when you started <laughs> this, this was all digital, right? Yes, that's okay. right. And so when did your film work come in? When did you start with that? Well, I had a film camera when I was a child. Um, mm -hmm. My first camera when I was about 10 and used it. Uh, you know, I enjoyed, enjoyed, enjoyed shooting that. I suppose, guess I used it for 10 or 15 years and then mm -hmm. got into digital, which helped me learn more quickly because of the instant feedback. Right. But I, I guess I got back into film, it was probably 2015-ish, I think. I discovered my original film camera um, lurking in the bottom of the wardrobe and just thought, oh, I'll get that out and have another go. Right. Found, uh, found by that stage, it, the meter wasn't working and it, it wasn't usable then, but I began to experiment and I've just sort of kept going, really. And that sort of developed into pinhole photography, which right. is my main film outlet now. Okay, and that and that the pinhole work started also it, with COVID. Is that right? I really got hooked on it during during the <laughs> pandemic. <laughs> um, I got my first pinhole camera. I think it was twenty eighteen. Okay, but it was a bit of a novelty, and then actually, what I my first one was a thirty five millimeter one, mm -hmm. and then. I don't know, about 18 months later, I, I realised the error of my ways and I should really have got a 120 <laughs> camera. The larger the format, the better, the better really with pinhole. So I got a 120 film camera, right. pinhole camera. And that made me realise the, the real possibilities of it. 
um, I sort of kept going. And then through COVID, I, I went through a period of doing quite a lot of pinhole photography, right. know, take, making myself again, take a photo, at least one photo every day. Right. Just try and experiment with it and see, see what the possibilities were. Okay. One of the things that I wanted to ask you about what one of your, the subjects that you like is automotive and motorsports. Mm. And so here where I live, we have a road course that's used by the Indy car circuit. But, oh, they, right. but, you know, that's only one race a year. So the other 364 <laughs> days, they've got to find things to do. So occasionally they will have races for historic automobiles. Mm. And I think you mentioned you grew up close to Goodwood, right? That's right. Yes. And and I have not been, but I'm I'm familiar with the Goodwood Festival. And uh you have a lot of really, really nice images from there. So talk a little bit about your interest in that as as a subject matter and kind of how you refined your technique. Mm, certainly. I would say if you ever come over here, you really should go to Goodwood. Go to the uh, my favorite event is actually the revival. Okay. There actually racing historic cars wheel to wheel it's just fantastic Not, you just can't beat the the you know the sights the sounds the smells everything is <laughs> brilliant <laughs> right but no i mean motor racing and cars have always been something that i've been been around because my, my dad my dad when he was a, um, a young man used to repair cars for fun mm -hmm. the weekend pastime and He's always been interested in cars and that's sort of rubbed off on me and we'd always we'd always watch the formula one races when they were on right and growing up near goodwood we used to pop up to the circuit the motor racing circuit there every so often just to see what was going on and i just didn't yeah really enjoy There's something about the lines of particularly old cars right that I, I love so yeah I, it was always one of those things i took photos of mm -hmm. and then we were we were at goodwood I mean, I used to pop into the circuit again fairly regularly just to see what was going on. And one day I went in, went along for one of the testing days for the revival okay. and took my digital camera with me. And I thought, well, I'll stick the pinhole camera in. You never know, might be able to find something there. <laughs> and uh, it's become one of those things. So whenever I, whenever I go there, I always take the pinhole camera with me. Right. And some of the regular drivers who often drive in these events now go, oh, it's the lady with the wooden box. <laughs> <laughs> and they, they recognize me now. And it's certainly with the pinhole stuff, you have to look at things in a different way. So you need to, very often you need to get close because they tend to be quite wide angle. Right. But then, of course, you've got the element of you've got movement in motorsport in cars. Mm -hmm. They're finding photos that will work. You know, use that capturing that movement within the frame right so photographs of cars going around on the circuit doesn't really work with pinhole because they don't <laughs> they, they don't they're, they're so fast they don't really appear in the, in the photo no um, that's right but stuff around the paddocks and uh you know the, the move the movement of the mechanics around the cars and things like that I, I love um you know capturing that sort of sense of passing time right betty so not even with the pinhole but on your digital work even just getting a good panning technique to capture the cars in motion where the car is yeah. sharp obviously but the background is blurred how how long did it take you to get that get that how you liked it <laughs> I, uh, it's still a work in progress I would say. 
it is one of those things i mean it's like it's like practicing a musical instrument you have to do it regularly and if i've not yeah if i've not done any panning work for a while it's rubbish to start with <laughs> <laughs> but it's one of those things when you get it right you right. get that you know you look at you know, particularly the digital you look at the back of the camera and go yes it's in, it's in, it's in <laughs> i think it was last year i met up with some friends at the at the at goodwood at the, the circuit on one of the testing days and one of the chaps said he said well let's have a little project we'll do panning shots a 20th of a second Mm-hmm. So there's about half a dozen of us all there following the cars <laughs> around and um, lots and lots and lots of failures. But I got a couple that I was really, really chuffed with. So uh, right. it's, it's good fun. It's a good challenge. Absolutely. And you, and you do have some really, really nice examples on your on your website Thank you. <laughs> as well. So one of your other subjects that you enjoy is architecture, right? Indeed. Yes. You know, going back to the music, it seems like probably you're playing in a lot of churches or museums or schools. These are places that often have really interesting architectural elements to them. Is that where that interest came in or are were you just drawn to architecture separate and apart from photography? I think the music probably has had an influence because, as you say, I've spent a lot of my time sitting in churches, rehearsing, mm-hmm. performing, what have you. So you sort of sit there and, yeah, particularly when you're sitting in an orchestra, you might be playing for a little while, then you sit there counting your rests <laughs> around you. Um, <laughs> right. And so I think that's probably, yeah, one of the reasons I'm drawn to that. Mm-hmm. And I think there's two things really the photography. I like telling the story of a building. Mm-hmm. So capturing the wide shots. So you take the whole building in, but then looking for interesting details. Right. Um, and you know little vignettes that sort of tell the story of the building and the people that use it and the other thing i find that excites me when i go into particularly churches is that the, the sort of the play of light in the building the way you get the, the light filtered through the windows through the stained glass and you get lovely effects um, right so uh, i think the two things that really really draw me to that Right. And not just architecture in general, but specifically, you have been documenting the churches of London? That's right. Yes. It's in the specific part of London, the city of London. So it's, okay. the, it's the square mile that has all the financial, is the financial district of the city. Okay. And in sort of the 16th, 17th centuries, it was a very heavily populated area. There was a lot, lot of people lived in the area. Mm-hmm. So there were lots of churches. So prior to the the great fire of 1666, there were mm-hmm. over a hundred churches within that square mile. Right. Quite a few of them burnt down, and then more were were bombed during the Second World War. But there's still, I think it's about 55 mm-hmm. there. And I've over the last eight years, I've been gradually working through them all, photographing them all. Okay. Uh, and uh, I've still got about ten to go. I, I I was on course to finish in 2020. <laughs> COVID got in the way. Right. Right. <laughs> but, uh, I'm I'm determined. I'm gonna I'm gonna catch up with that this year and you know, finish them off. Okay. And and how has that experience normally been? Do you just walk in and say hello? I'd like to take some pictures. Or are they normally? <laughs> okay with you doing that or or do you have to get special permission or how does that process work um most of them you can just turn up they're not all open every day the makeup of the the city of london has changed so it's mostly offices now okay 
so a lot of the churches don't have a regular congregation they may you know people pop in during the week or they may have weekday services but there's not many that are open now open at weekends because there's just no one there so there's a fantastic website um the friends of the city churches which i've used and that has information about when they're all open okay so it's a question of just figuring out which one's open on the day that i'm going into london which ones i've got left to do and then just popping in right they have some church, what they call church watchers the volunteers who man some of the churches and will talk to visitors but some of them you can just turn up and you have the place to yourself so okay which I love I mean, yeah I love doing that because it, it's nothing quite like just being being alone in a church and just being able to potter around and <laughs> yeah you know, see what's there and what what you found yeah you know, what appeals to my to my eye right so when and if you're traveling for your musical work is mm. is architecture if you have a, a few free moments for photography while you're traveling is is architecture what you would typically seek out in a new place it often is yes i also until about six months ago i worked for the national trust okay just as a, a part-time job that was actually at hatfield forest an ancient forest near where i live but they have a lot of stately homes mm-hmm. and historic buildings so very often if i'm traveling i'll stop off at one of those and you know take some photos and you ex- explore the place right and it's a it's a nice way to sort of break break long journeys as well right <laughs> go, go exploring or or if i'm somewhere i mean fairly recently i was in wales for a course okay. and on the way there i i did some research on my way and found a, a redundant church okay. that was that was going to be open so i stopped off there and explore went exploring with my camera <laughs> so the two definitely feed off each other (laughs) that's right and it's another thing i'm envious of in addition to goodwood is all of the architecture that you have available to you of course here in the states all of the buildings are (laughs) built much more recently (laughs) so there are some very old buildings that are that are nearly falling down or there are some very modern looking buildings but not a lot of 400-year-old buildings. <laughs> no. Well, interesting. Interesting. There is actually one of the churches that was in the city of London mm-hmm. um, was actually gifted to America okay. by Winston Churchill. I think it was 1964, so it was dismantled and shipped over there. I'm trying to think where it is. I think it might be Washington area. Okay. Uh, but it's a Sir Christopher Wren church. It's okay. basically been picked up and transported to America. You've got one of our churches there, which is probably <laughs> Well, I will definitely look into that. So another area, and this is, it looks like you have just posted to your blog today or yesterday, uh, another subject is street photography, right? Indeed. That you enjoy? I do. I'm not sure I'd claim to be very good at it, but I certainly <laughs> enjoy it. Again, it was one of those things I did more of before COVID. And then, of mm-hmm. course, the streets were much quieter. Right. Um, street photography, I find it's one of those things that's easier if you're somewhere where there's lots of people around, particularly somewhere like London, where no one bats an eyelid if you've, you know, no one thinks twice about it if, you, if you're carrying a camera. Right. Whereas if you go into Saffron Warden, the, the, you know, the little town just up the road from me here, and you walk around with the camera, people give you very strange looks. <laughs> What's he <you> photographing? <laughs> So street photography is easier somewhere where you can blend in and not be noticed. Right. Um, but I, I enjoy I enjoy people watching, mm-hmm. you know, observing what people are doing and looking for interesting gestures and 
so it's 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 good fun uh, but i'm rather out of practice at it <laughs> so yesterday's photos were a bit of bit of a yes of an experiment try and get back back in the saddle and have a go at that again right okay well that is something i'm always interested in hearing about so that's you touched on it a little bit in london it, it may not be as conspicuous as it might be in a smaller town but just mm -hmm people in your photography and interacting with them and if you have any encounters is is that anything that you're conscious of i mean do you so some of the compositions uh looking back through your back catalog of, of mm. images you might have people in a photo but it's not you know, it, it may be that they're, it just made for an interesting composition. If someone is sitting on the floor and you're looking down at them or they have stopped to look at an advertisement or something like that, they're a compositional element, but they're maybe not the main subject of your photo. It, it was just how the timing of the scene made for a good image, but sort of what is your, yes. have you done any portrait work where the, where the, people are the main subject of the photograph or what is your thoughts on people in your street photography i guess i have to confess i'm not really a portrait photographer mm -hmm. i'm more of a person you know take photos of people while they're doing what they would what they would ordinarily be doing um so in street photography it's more about for me it's more about capturing people sort of in the environment perhaps interacting with each other or mm -hmm. interacting with their environment you know rather than street portraits right although there was <laughs> one occasion a few years back i got a picture of a chap in london who was walking straight towards me and i got a you know, frame filling portrait of him although he did i don't i'm not sure whether he was aware of it at the time but he's looking straight into the camera <laughs> and, uh, i in, entered that in our, our camera club competition they actually won best portrait which i thought was hilarious because it was <laughs> i wasn't going to complain right <laughs> Have you ever had any encounters where someone maybe wasn't thought they might have been in your picture and weren't happy about it or just asked you in general what you were out doing taking pictures? <laughs> Occasionally people have spoken to me, but I've never really had any particularly negative experiences. Mm -hmm. uh, very often your people will sort of look at you as if you get this sort of ex quizzical expression as if to say, are you taking my photo? Hmm. I'm not sure. <laughs> oh well i'll leave it let, let it go so no one no one's really sort of caused you know give me any any trouble i did have one occasion i was doing some street photography in in the city in london and this chap came up to me looking quite sort of official and asked me what i was doing and i explained gave me one of my one of my cards and said what i was doing he said okay that's fine i'll go to talk to security and make sure they don't come and bother you which i thought was very nice of him <laughs> that is nice I, I was expecting to get hassled well actually he was really helpful right <laughs> Pleasant surprise. Absolutely. So, you know, we don't talk a whole lot about gear here, but what mm. I have noticed, you posted some images recently with a Rolly 35. Yes. And uh, so what, what all cameras, digital and film cameras, are, have you been using recently? Well, pinhole stuff, my camera's all on-do cameras, mm -hmm. uh, little wooden ones, which are just lovely to work with. Very nice my film cameras i've got an odd mix i've got a rolleiflex uh 2.8 f which okay. is actually my my uncle's he's loaned it to me because he's not using it anymore so i'm 
very lucky to have that right but my 35 millimeter cameras i've got quite a few of them but they all tend to be little sort of fixed lens sort of range finder things so i've got the rolly 35 i've got an olympus trip mm-hmm. um, i've got an olympus xa and i've got a rico 500g okay so they're all quite small and compact mm-hmm. uh, i've not gone down the route of having slrs or anything like that okay uh, and then digital stuff i shoot a mixture of panasonic and fuji gear at the moment okay um, with mostly with prime lenses i think that's probably why i like the little fixed lens rangefinders for the film because my my brain's just wired for using <laughs> a, a, um, a fixed focal length i'm happiest with a prime lens right right i agree <laughs> i think it it you know kind of getting back to the subject of practicing as a way to get better at doing anything this seems to be sort of um you know it's not contentious but i i feel like especially maybe in the film side of the photography community there's a couple of different uh lines of thought one is okay i want to use this one camera one lens one film to get as proficient as i can and get consistent repeatable results yes and then another group of people who like trying a little bit of everything (laughs) (laughs) so i guess as it relates to that so you like to restrict your gear to is that a similar how you feel about it (laughs) i think so yes i find i'm very much the school of thought that if you have if you have too many choices Mm -hmm. you end up with photographic inertia and you know these sort of indecisions or which which lens do i use what focal length do i use right so actually i tend to i mean for instance if i'm doing photographing architecture with my digital mm-hmm. camera i tend to use either a 24 millimeter effective focal length or sort of 85 right and that pairing for me works best i can get the wide shots i can also i can use either lens to go in for details and close-ups and it's just I find it makes me work a bit harder for the photos as well. Right. Rather than standing in one place and zooming, I, you know, I have to walk around and seek out the photos that will work. Right. And I enjoy that process. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. And, and I'm sort of in that camp as well. I feel like, especially recently, over the last, I would say, three or four months, I have been trying to mostly just use a 50-millimeter lens for that normal view and you know it seems probably boring <laughs> to to some people right because it's it's the it's the normal view i guess is is one of the terms they use for it. it's it's how we're accustomed to seeing the world so sometimes those tight shots are interesting because you're not used to seeing it that way yes Make, makes you work that little bit harder doesn't it because you've really got to try to find that yeah different look haven't you yeah you do absolutely but i you know to the other side of it i I do think you know it has helped because if you do use one focal length you know whatever it may be i I think when if you come into a scene that you're not familiar with or you know maybe you have some preconceived notion about it (laughs) when you arrive on, on a new scene you you know, because you're used to seeing it that at that focal length, you it gives you a head start on your composition, I think, because yes. you're used to it. 
yeah and actually i did uh it was about two or three years ago and i i, I set myself a little project to spend a month using predominantly one one of my prime lenses mm -hmm. so i spent a month mostly using a 24 millimeter focal right. length and i spent another month using 50 and it was really interesting doing that because it made me seek out different subjects using that one lens and making it work right and some of them were much easier than others so <laughs> shooting right. shooting wide angle made me made me think about getting in close to things right uh, i think i think the hardest one i had um i've got a an olympus 75 millimeter lens my micro four thirds camera mm -hmm. so it's an effective focal length of 150 millimeters oh, wow. <laughs> and that was really hard i tried doing street photography with that and that was really really difficult right um, i was quite happy to see the back of that one by the end of the month <laughs> It was a good. It was a good challenge. It made, it made, I learned a lot from doing it as well. Absolutely, yeah. I I did different focal lengths. <laughs> for sure, I I did similarly last year for one month. Uh, well, it wasn't for the whole month. I I shot a roll of film mm. uh, with a hundred and thirty-five millimeter lens. All oh, right. Yes. And so it it really is a challenge because that is not how we would normally approach most subjects. So. no um it's the sort of thing i mean I, some of the um street photography i was doing yesterday was that sort of focal length and uh, there were several times when i thought oh that'd be really really good shot ah oh, i'm too close so then I had to <laughs> walk back several paces. okay still not far enough away <laughs> right right sort of along the same lines of working to get better and I sort of tease this at the top, but you did a workshop with Andrew Bartram, right, at his Finland's uh, right. dark room and workshops. So tell us a little bit about that experience, what, what you learned uh, that was new to you and, and sort of what bits and pieces you've been able to carry on with. Well, I opted, Andrew does, he offers, you can do a one day workshop, we do two days with him, I chose to do two. So we spent the first day, we sort of, he, talked through you know, what we would do and we talked about photographers we enjoy and, and processes and what have you and then we went went out and did some did some shooting so I used my pinhole camera and I also used the Holger that I'd taken with me mm -hmm. um, just going around Fenland it was an area that I'm not familiar with so it was, it was interesting to see very different landscapes around here very very flat open landscapes right. um, and then the second day we went back to Andrews actually no sorry it was in the afternoon the first day we went back and I practiced loading film onto the onto the reels that the main reason I wanted to do this was to learn how to develop my own film mm -hmm. so practice getting the film onto the reels and then developed my own film and then we did some printing okay. um, and I haven't I have to miss I haven't carried on with the printing because I haven't really got the space to right. do that but I have kept developing my own film and I, I really enjoy the process of it and something therapeutic about just standing there at the kitchen sink here you know, <laughs> and then putting it down and it's got I quite often listen to music while I'm doing it as well so I can combine photography and music together which is nice right right and it's as I said said to you before we started recording it's, it saved me quite a bit of money as well because it's much cheaper to develop my own than to send the, the film off to be developed so it so. is win-win <laughs> <laughs> that's right and just very satisfying to open up the canister and and pull out your negatives and see that it all worked it's, it just yes. still seems a little bit like magic 
it does, doesn't it? And he's always he's always sort of open the open the the the, the, uh, the canister and go, have they worked? Oh, I've got photos. <laughs> <laughs> Feeling of relief that I haven't I haven't made a hash of it. <laughs> That's right. This is sort of the last question, I guess. And I think when you were talking to Andrew on the lens list, someone had asked about music and photography and how these two <laughs> things maybe inform one another or influence one another and i think at the time you mentioned that more and, and you just talked about listening to music while you're developing so that's the way that they cross over but in general you kind of keep them separate right music is your job and photography is sort of like a side passion for you but yeah. i was go ahead Oh, I was going to say, cause yeah. it, one, of, one of the reasons I first started doing digital photography, I got my other half to buy me a camera for mm -hmm. my birthday, was because I wanted something, I wanted a hobby that wasn't my work. Right. And I think for a lot of musicians, work and hobby become very much the same thing. And you end up <laughs> thinking, well, actually, have I got a life beyond my job? <laughs> <laughs> right. Um, <laughs> um, so, yeah, the photography is definitely much more of a hobby. But the two do tend to be fairly separate. I'm one of those people that if I'm listening to music, I have to listen to the music. And I have I have this horrible habit of analysing the music I'm listening to. Think, <laughs> How have they done that? Where's that harmony going? <laughs> so if I'm doing that, I then can't concentrate on the photography. So the two tend to be separate, apart from when I'm developing film. And that sort of segues into what I was going to ask, which was just, you know, even though these are separate, the reason that this podcast exists, music and photography, it, it just seemed to me that there was a bigger cross section and, and it makes sense. You know, creative people are probably more likely to seek out multiple ways to be creative mm. than the general population, but th there was a larger, so say amongst photographers, for example, a higher percentage of people that are in photography or into music than just the general population so was just curious about your thoughts even though these are maybe separate endeavors for you there's still this creative element to them both is is that what you is is that what you mainly get out of these two things or are there other things that satisfies that creative drive that you have maybe yes i mean they are they're mostly separate things for me you know i enjoy I, yeah it's, it's it, I, the other thing i've really enjoyed with photography is being able to make something visual rather than just oral right and i was i was never particularly good at art at school i wasn't into drawing or painting mm -hmm. um, but i enjoy still using light and right. you know, creating images and you know, photography is my way way of doing that i mean the two do come together sometimes i quite often get roped in to take photos for music <laughs> events right so i'll, I'll take other, the various courses i teach on i'm very often also official photographer right taking photos of the musical activities and i think i think they're actually the two really come together things like concerts where i photograph and using my musical knowledge to know when the conductor's going to give that amazing gesture right and that's when you want the photo rather than when he's just standing there still uh, <laughs> So the two, the two uh, that's probably the point where the two come together most for me. Okay. Well, this has been great, Helen. I really appreciate you taking some time to chat with me. How can people get okay. in touch and follow along with what all you've got going on? Well, I've got 
a website for my music and a website for my photography. So the music side is helenhooker.co.uk. Mm-hmm. And the photography is helenhookerphotography.co.uk. <laughs> That's simple. Um, right. And I've got various, I've got three different Instagram accounts, but the one I'm posting on most at the moment is my pinhole one, okay. which is HH Pinhole. Okay. And I post something on there. I've since, is it two years I've been doing it now? Yes, since the beginning of 2021. I've posted a, a photo every day on on that account, okay. a pinhole photo, not necessarily taken that day. <laughs> right, <laughs> that's a bit too much of an ask. And so that's my sort of daily daily pinhole project that I've been I've been doing. And on, if you go on there, there's links to my other other accounts as well. Okay, and I will be certain to include those links in the show notes for for the listeners. <laughs> Absolutely. And just thank you so much again for your time. I've really enjoyed talking with you. My, my pleasure. Thank you. Thank you for having me on the show. It's been, been really enjoyable. Special thanks again to Helen Hooker for joining me to share some of her insights into music and photography. Please do check out the links in the show notes to find out where you can follow Helen and learn more about her work. Our theme song, Timeless, by Mike Gutterman, is available at mikegutterman.bandcamp.com. Be sure to check out all of the music that Mike makes available for content creators and just for your general listening enjoyment. If you have an idea for a topic you would like to explore in podcast form, you can get in touch with the Sunny 16 team at sunny16presents at gmail.com. And as John Whitmore might say, always try and be a decent human being.